Amen. It's often the case that before we dive into a text together, I need to do some, or sometimes admittedly, longer introductions to get you some information you need from the Old Testament to make sure that we understand truly what we're reading here. Uh, but fortunately, I don't have to do that today. It's not a very long intro. We're actually going to be able to dive into these verses fairly quickly, but let me get you caught up. If you're new with us today or you've been out, this is the 36th Sermon in the Gospel of Mark series, and I don't have to catch you all the way up, but here's some things you need to know. The last time we were together, Jesus was leaving the temple, and the disciples said to him, hey, look at all these cool buildings. Isn't this temple complex incredible? And then Jesus launches into what ended up being several sermons for us about the end of everything. And now we get a true reset. We get a whole new whole new topic here in chapter 14, remembering that we're still in Passion Week. Jesus coming in on that donkey and then going to the temple and dominating the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, overturning tables, really orchestrating his own death, getting them motivated to crucify him, and then prophesying over Jerusalem, prophesying over the end of everything. Now we get something new as they're outside of the temple. And it's one of these things I've talked to you about before It's in theology. It's called a Markin sandwich because the way Mark, the gospel writer here, the way he likes to structure his stories, they're often like sandwiches. They're often like the Wizard of Oz story, right? So you have the beginning, but really the most of the movie is what happens when she's in Oz and then she gets back from Oz, right? That's a sandwich story. He has a lot of those. We're having, we have one of those today where paragraphs one doesn't seem to have anything to do with the middle story, but then he brings it back together and I'll show you how. He's starting a story, he'll tell a story in between and come back and finish the first one. So that's really all you need to know to make this thing work. Let's start to, let's get to work. Verses one and two, once again, we'll stop after that and talk about it. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So we stop there to get the setting. We are again in Passion Week. The Jews have all come to Jerusalem. It's very high stakes. Jesus' primary enemies are endeavoring to kill him, and it's a big group of people. They're very nervous that if they kill Jesus, there might be some kind of uproar, some uprising, and the core holidays, Passover, the biggest holiday for the Jews, is about to be, uh, is about to be celebrated. And we look back on just the previous chapter, and we get why the religious leaders want him dead. He just made them look terrible. They kept asking him questions. They thought they were going to trap him. And over and over, he just dominates them and is again orchestrating his own death. They're plotting to be very careful. They need a, they need a way to arrest Jesus secretly. Now, that's all his first two verses need to give you. These guys want to get Jesus and get him by secret. So then what happens next? It doesn't seemingly at the beginning, you go, I don't, these things do not seem connected. How is this story of this woman and this incredible, uh, this incredible image of worship and pouring out what she has, her adoration for Jesus, how is this connected to the plot to kill Jesus? Well, as we get through it, you'll see how the two things are connected. He'll connect it there at the end. Now, before we get to verse 3, I, need to, I do need to prep you for this. We've all probably heard, if you grew up in this church, you've, grew, you've, you've heard the alabaster box story. We all grew up with, a lot of us grew up with a song about the alabaster box, this really dramatic demonstration of some woman's, in the Gospel of John it says it's, it's Mary, 
of some woman's adoration for Jesus. Of what we just read in here in Mark, the story has other versions. There's a version in Matthew, and there's a version in John. There's some chance that this, this, uh, these events, that they happened more than once. That's a possibility. And those that think that, I think they have a good argument. I, I, I have landed that they're all telling the same story, that John and Mark and Matthew are all recounting the same events. They just tell it a little differently to make their points. And so while this woman in the story was not called Mary, you might hear me say that today because I've concluded it's probably Mary. It could have been some other woman. And by Mary, I don't mean his mom. Uh, you remember the Mary of Mary and Martha fame where uh, Mary's always working and Martha's always working and Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus, enjoying him. They're the sisters of Lazarus who Jesus brought back from the dead. It's probably that Mary. I could be wrong, but it doesn't change what we're going to do here today with this woman. So before we read it, I need you to know different authors, John and Matthew, tell it a little differently. All right, verse 3. And while Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. This is a skill in Bible reading. Um, what we're looking at now is a flashback. Because we know where Jesus is, right? He's in Jerusalem. He's been in the temple. And so a skill in Bible reading is when you read, and while he was at Bethany, we stop and go, he's not at Bethany. He's at Jerusalem. So I must be reading about something that's happened in the past. I'm getting a flashback of some kind of dinner, some kind of celebration, some kind of social event happening at a guy named Simon's house back there in Bethany. And all the scholars are, would agree that this is something we're supposed to remember. Oh, Jesus has friends in Bethany. Jesus is super tight with that Lazarus guy that he brought back from the dead. This is where Jesus wept over his friend Lazarus. And Mary and Martha are probably there too. Even if you don't think Mary is the one who broke the alabaster flask, they're, they are likely all there together, the disciples and other followers having a great time together. And so I want to paint a scene for you. I think I can argue for it. I don't think I'm leaving scripture here, especially when you combine Matthew, Mark, and John's version of this. Here's what I imagine back there in Bethany. It's a good time. It's a lot of folks together. It's some good food. It's some good drink. If you are Reformed Baptist, it's some good wine. There's some good conversations. There's a lot of laughs. At, at, and it's because it's a Jewish thing. They're all at table, reclining at table with the mats on the floor. Their, their feet are pointed out. They're all just kind of elbows on the table enjoying one another. And here's how I imagine it. Dinner's winding down. Martha is hurried, hurriedly picking up dishes, maybe preparing the next course. And Lazarus is probably regaling the table with the story of what it was like to die and then not be dead. He's got all kinds of fun jokes about what it was like to unwrap him of all of that heavy, or those heavy spices they put on him. And they're having a great time, so much so that no one noticed, I don't think, when Mary, or whoever this woman is, just disappeared for a while. She left the table. And I suspect, because it is a patriarchal culture, no one really rem no one noticed when she came in the room with a big wooden box and, excuse me, a big wooden bowl with some kind of box in it. And I wonder if anyone even noticed by the time that she sat down where Jesus' feet were. Now pause real quickly. I need you to understand a little bit of this alabaster box. Not a lot. I listened to a lot of sermons about this story. and There's some, there's some dudes obsessed with this box. They want to tell you a lot about it. You don't need to know a lot about the box to get what's happening here. 
just understand this, it's super valuable. It is likely because it is so valuable, almost one year's wages. This box in a woman's home was likely being kept for her dowry or her death. It was going to be used in the exchange to get a husband, or if she never married, it was going to be used in her honor and to pay for maybe her, her final debts or to pay for whatever happens to her at the end. This box represents very genuinely her entire future, either marriage or death. It's one of her most valued assets she has in this box. And so it is so dramatic when we see this almost year's wages, it's a signifier of how she's gonna end her life or get married. And she doesn't just squeeze a little bit out. She isn't trying to be judicious with its contents. She just breaks it open. And we get in one account, he pour, she pours it on his feet, another account, and this one pours it on Jesus' head. And while there was a lot of conversation around that table, the room is now being filled with that scent. And as more and more people recognize what's happening, I suspect that room is being filled with more and more tension. The conversations go silent. The air is full of that scent. And all eyes are now on Mary, or this woman, pouring the ointment out as we read from another account even taking down her hair what is likely the, 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 the scriptures say uh, the, the glory of a woman is her long hair in that culture what is likely her best kept cleanest part of her she's got it on the lowest part of Jesus soaking up the additional oils and ointment and all things stop to focus on this very dramatic thing happening in the room and I wonder about everyone's Reaction. We get to find out the reaction of everyone in the room. and I can't prove this, but I, I imagine from Jesus, knowing what room he's in, he's in the room with one who will betray him, Judas. He's on the road to Jerusalem where he knows he'll die. And I imagine Jesus, who knows his Bible, thinking back to Psalm 23, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, all fear, no evil. Skipping ahead, you prepare a table for me, amongst my enemies you anoint my head with oil whatever Jesus response was we do know what the response of everyone else is there starts to be whispers that fragrance is worth a year's wages how dare she how dare this indulgence right here in the middle of everything we've got going here verse 4 and there were some who said to themselves indignantly indignantly why was the ointment wasted? Hold that word. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Matthew specifies in his account of this that it wasn't just they talking to themselves. It was the disciples. It was the apostles whispering to themselves or to each other, what is this woman doing? And I try to be understanding, because I admit, when I read people making mistakes in the Bible, I always think, that would have been me. I'd have made that mistake. And I would have been whispering, what is she doing? This is embarrassing. It's indulgent. They have a ministry marked by generosity. And so for there to be this extravagant spending on just anointing Jesus, yeah, there's an internal discussion that stops being internal. It finally becomes a public scold. Someone says it out loud. Why are you doing this? And while John's gospel, his version of this, says it was Judas, you don't even need John's gospel because you can, you can imagine this. In a room run by men, 
and in a room full of men unapproving of what she's done, I hear the treasurer, I hear the gatekeeper of the money, he's the one that speaks up with a rough rebuke, and out of the silence created by all the tension and wonder of what's happening, I hear a cold, why? Why are you wasting this? And I hear Judas scolding her. There's an implication he makes here of indulgence. Why are you wasting this valuable thing you have on Jesus? Mary, or this woman, you have something very valuable. A year's wages, that which you might give in marriage or will mark your death. You're using something so valuable on Jesus? Why would you waste it like that? So you have all of the drama of her coming in silently and creating this scene. And now Judas or someone rebuking her. Verse 6, we'll see what happens. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Stop there for a second. I love that she didn't have to defend herself. He was asked, she was asked, she was rebuked, why are you doing this? And Jesus speaks speaks up on her behalf. And he says, leave her alone. And he gives some really profound reasons. I think it's four reasons here. He said, leave her alone. He said, leave her alone because she has done something beautiful. Leave her alone because the poor will always be with you. Leave her alone because you won't always have me. And leave her alone because she's anointed my body before burial. Let's go through all four of those together. Jesus says, leave her alone. And here's the reasons you should leave her alone in this extravagant expression of worship and adoration. So number one, Leave her alone. She's done something beautiful to me. You have to ponder for a second. Okay, so why is it beautiful? Lots of different things are beautiful for different reasons. Why is this action beautiful? John Piper said it this way. It's beautiful when the adoration for someone matches that person's actual worth. Say it again. It's beautiful when the adoration someone receives actually matches what they're worth. And I think we can feel that internally. We love when the people we love are loved well. It's beautiful to us when the people we find high value in are being loved and adored well. I find this mostly in my mother, who loves her kids, maybe a smidge too much. She finds a great deal of value in us. And as I've just been, I've been living personally, but that's something I've seen previously. You know who else she loves? Marley, Jason, Mark, and now Nikki. She, because she finds so much value in us. She's, she has so much adoration for us. She loves the ones that love us. You can probably find that in your own life. We, we think it's beautiful when the people we love get the love that matches how we view their worth. And that's what Jesus is saying here. She recognizes this woman, maybe uniquely in the room, She recognizes his majesty, his worth. She's matching the maximum worth 
with her maximum value. This is the most adoration I can get. The most adoration I can give. I can come in this room with my most valuable asset. I can anoint your head, prepare you for burial, wipe your feet with my hair. I recognize who you are. You are chiefly valuable. And so I I need to adore you at your actual value. It was Doug that caught this point. I think he's right. He texted to me. This word beautiful, it appears only one time in the law. So if you go back to the law we're given in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this word is only used once, and it's used in the context of valuating people for labor. And in that text, a woman's labor is valued at 30 shekels, or let's call it 30 units. In this story, we're getting the disciples say, that was worth 300 units. She might be saying here poetically, you are worth 10 times what I, I am worth. Some kind of poetic, poetic statement of how significant, how much more worth Jesus has than her or any of us. I think it's also significant that Judas at the end, he will sell Jesus for a mere 30 units where she was saying you are worth the 300. Instead of valuing Jesus, Judas, Instead of valuing him for his inexpressible worth, he gives him away cheaply. She knows his inexpressible worth and she pours out all she's got to say, you're worth it. And to everyone else in the room, it looked absurd. It looked wasteful. They saw the ointment. They saw the ointment as too good a gift for Jesus. It's too much to give to him. They saw what it represented. They saw it was all of her future, her marriage, or her death. They saw the the money that could come from it, the opportunities or experiences that could come from it. How could you give that much up for Jesus? What was beautiful here is that she saw Jesus for who he was and worshipped him like he deserves with everything she's got. Piper said it this way as well. His perfections were matched by her affections. His perfections matched by her affections. And that's a good model for us today in worship. Do our affections match his perfections and his majesty? So one, leave her alone. She's done something beautiful. Beautiful. She's matched my value with her worship. Number two, leave her alone because the poor will always be with you. I struggle with this lately. As my view of what happens at the end of everything changes, I struggle with the idea that the poor will always be with us. I mean, we grew up, a lot of us, we grow up being taught everything has to get worse. The world has to get worse, otherwise Jesus can't come again. We need calamity and disaster, mostly in the United States, and if that happens, then Jesus comes again. And I just don't think that anymore. I think we had that wrong. As I consider now that Jesus is reigning right now, And that if Christians in the U.S. and China and Uganda and Brazil and everywhere all over the world would do their thing and disciple others, we don't have to have all the terrible things we see in the world. We don't need abandoned children and women and traumatic childhoods and selfish people cheating and scheming to take advantage of others. Like, we can actually fix all that if the church would do its thing worldwide. And so when Jesus says, no, even if you you do all that, you're a very successful church, the poor will always be with you. I look back into the wall, the, those first five books of the Bible, and find even in a, the, in a theocracy where Jesus or God was reigning, that was always true. There was always some orphan. There was always the widow. 
there was always someone to care for until Jesus finally comes again and fixes all of it. Where there will be no poor, there is a, a reminder here for us that there is always the opportunity and obligation to serve those who are, bro- who are broken by the brokenness of this world. It's a good reminder for us. And it's a good reminder that to long for that day when that's not true anymore. But I think there's more here. I think he's saying to Judas, who I think is the one who said it, if you really care for the poor, Judas, you'll have your opportunity, all right? You, you can actually always have an opportunity to serve the poor. He's calling out his hypocrisy, saying, I don't actually think that's why you're your problem. I don't think your problem is that this 300 denarii weren't given to the poor. I think you probably wanted to embezzle it and use it yourself in some way. He's calling two things there in that statement. Calling for us to recognize our opportunity and obligation to serve those broken by a broken world, but also saying to Judas, come on, man, you don't actually care about the poor. So leave her alone because she's done something beautiful. Leave her alone because you'll always have an opportunity to serve the poor. They're always going to be with you. Three, leave her alone because you will not always have me. That's a dramatic statement. And I don't know that anyone in that room gets the gravity of it. God, maker of all things, in frail flesh, walking around in the world that we live in. That era was coming to an end. And I think she gets it like none of them did. She understands who Jesus is. She sat at his feet. She's experienced his grace. She has felt the thankfulness of seeing her her brother brought back to life. She has felt the lavish love of Jesus. And so she did all that she could do to express what she's experienced because she gets it. We're going to lose you in body. She's been listening better than the rest of them. He's been telling them all along what was coming. And I, th- I think what we're learning here is she gets it. This is, the, this is my chance to show you before you go, and we're finally, we're finally all reunited in glory. Before you go, I need you to know I know who you are. I know how much adoration you deserve. You've shown me such grace. I just want to lavish back on you before you go. So leave her alone. She's done something beautiful. Leave her alone. You'll always have the poor. Leave her alone. You will not always have me. And then finally, leave her alone. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. As I said a moment ago, she understands what they're losing. They're losing the Son of God in the flesh. And so... If that's what you're losing, 300 days wages in comparison to God in the flesh amongst you. It was nothing to her. She anointed his body before what she knew was coming. You know, here we see she anointed his head. We see in other accounts she anoints his feet. This is, in part, you can see burial uh, these are things happening to prepare a body for burial. His body was prepared for, prepared for burial long before it happened, but it happened in that room in Bethany and how she went about it. She's, I mentioned this earlier. There's something we're supposed to take here from the John account where she uses her hair to clean up his feet using that which is one of her cleanest and best parts, using it on the lowliest part of Jesus, showing you are the greatest good no affection I could ever show could ever be enough. She understands that they're losing him, and she understands how they're losing him, and she's preparing his body for it. So, she has the big 
a big expression of adoration and worship. She gets rebuked. Why are you wasting this? Jesus steps up for her and says, leave her alone. She's doing something beautiful. She's showing all of my worth. She's preparing me for burial before I go. And then we get the payoff line. I told you this is a, it's a sandwich here. Apparently, this story somehow, this incredible story of someone matching their affection to Jesus' perfection somehow is related to the plot to kill Jesus. So let's look at it in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to, to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give Judas money. And Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. We're told this story because it's some kind of breaking point for Judas. He was so incensed that something he... He was so incensed at something in this room that he purposed in his heart to get Jesus killed. It might have been the honor, the honor this woman was was shown by Jesus instead of him. Could have been all that money he couldn't embezzle. I think it might have been the dawning reality that this Jesus, he might not be the one I was looking for. I was looking for someone to give me power. I was looking for someone to get me riches and influence in this world. Something's off about him. And something on this story sets Judas off. So before we get this incredible story of the woman in the alabaster box, we've got folks, chief, chief priests and scribes, they need a way to get him by, to get him by secret. This story is what sets up, well, you got your way now. Judas is on the inside, and we're set up for future stories about the betrayal of Jesus and his ultimate death, his, de- his, his sham trial and his, his death. So that's the text for today. We have that sandwich to set up the narrative going forward, Jesus being crucified. But what do we do with the story of this woman? The story of this woman coming in with this very dramatic expression of worship for Jesus. Well, I just have two things for you, just two. Number one is wasting your life for Jesus. Number one, wasting your life for Jesus. It wasn't just Judas. All the disciples gave the expression that what she was doing was wasteful. She was wasting one of her most valuable assets on Jesus. She owned this, the, this, this alabaster box and all of its, all of its, uh, what's included inside, and she broke it. She didn't just give him some; like she gave him all, and they all looked at that and went, "That's so wasteful." Why would you waste all of that on Jesus? That's a temptation we'll get today. I know the the voices of this world say if you're going to use your talent, your potential, you're going to use the leadership abilities, you're going to use your younger years, your youth, you're going to use your integrity, your character. If you're using all those things to get power for yourself, that makes sense. If you're using those things to get fame and notoriety, that makes sense. If you're using all your talent and potential and youth and, and integrity and all that God has gifted you with, if you're using that to get pleasure, that makes total sense. If you're using it to get more money, it makes total sense. That is what this world will tell you. If you will use what you've been given to get power, fame, pleasure, and money and all the experiences that the world has to offer, that makes total sense. But if you start to use your talent and potential, not for getting power, sex, and money, 
if you start using your younger years not on just gathering pleasurable experiences, if you start using your money, your influence, your opinions, your ideas, if you start using those for Jesus, the world will call you a radical. The world will call you a wasteful person. Why would you waste those young years on Jesus? You know, much, you know how much pleasures the world offers? Don't waste your young years on Jesus. Wait, use those over here. That's young folks what you're going to hear. Don't waste your integrity on being faithful to Jesus when there's money to be had. There's experiences to be had. If you'll just betray the, your integrity or your, your faith, if you'll just do that, there's so much power, fame, and pleasure and money to go get. Don't waste those things on Jesus is what the world says. But what we see in her and what we see in the story is just how valuable he is. Anything you use on Jesus, it is not waste. If you will use your talent and potential in leadership and your, your resources, if you will use them on Jesus, you'll never regret it. It's not wasteful. When you see him as the most valuable thing, there's no waste. I see this a lot in what I do professionally. I run into really talented young people. 18, 19 year olds who I, because of what I do, I actually get to see their achievement level and these are some high achievers, some folks that are higher academic achievers than probably almost anyone in the room. And so you make, you make assumptions about them. This person's probably going on into some kind of the medical world, they're gonna get into business, they wanna get into finance, all those are very good things to get into. And you start talking to these very talented, high intellect people and you ask, what, what do you wanna do? I wanna go overseas and share the gospel. I'm seeking after this missionary agency. That's what I wanna do. And they'll, they'll tell me the stories of a parent or a, or a aunt or uncle or a grandparent that says, why would you waste that? You've been given so much potential for power and money and pleasure. Why would you waste all that on Jesus? And these young folks, they, can, they seem to be like this woman, Mary. They just see, oh no, Jesus is better. He's so much more valuable than whatever I'm going to get. You want me to go get the American dream when I can go grow the kingdom of God? No, what I can get, it's in serving Jesus, it's better. That's, that's something for you today. To ask yourself, what do, I, what do I got that if I gave it to Jesus, some folks would think it's a waste. What am I holding back and just recognize, if you would be like Mary here and recognize, he's just the most valuable thing. You'll never find a more valuable person. You'll do what she did and she'll, you'll break the flask. It's, it's actually one of the more dramatic things about this to me. I did some research on these devices. You can just use a little. Like you can just get a little bit of the ointment, you can just get a little bit out of there and just use the appropriate amount that you need. That's not what she did. She broke the thing. Like I, I'm all the way in. We're breaking the flask, I'm going all the way in to show you how much adoration you deserve because she, vowed, she grasped how valuable he is and that's the call today. Break your flask. Whatever you've got of value, you will never waste it on Jesus. Break open your money, your potential, your talent, your younger years, your ideas. Break them open and say, Jesus, they're just all yours. I'm holding nothing back. Number one, wasting your life on Jesus. Whatever you give him will never be a waste. Number two, spotting the true disciple or discerning the true disciple. It's another one of these Mark sandwiches that I find very interesting about this story. 
if you go back to chapter 12, Jesus has this odd teaching with this old lady. She comes in with her two pennies, her two mites, and she drops them in the offering box, as it were, and then he, he teaches this story that and she gave all she's got. She held nothing back. She, he commends her and condemns those who just gave a little of what they had. And then it was just right after that teaching, like very literally the next story is the disciples coming outside and saying, look at all this cool stuff, all these cool buildings. And I wonder if Jesus looks and goes, were you listening at all? I was just telling you about how just faithfulness and sacrifice, that that's what I'm looking for. I'm not impressed with all your big buildings. And so you get the story of this woman, the old lady with the two mites. You get a whole bunch of prophecies about the end of everything and the end of Jerusalem. The next story, it's about another woman who gave everything. There's something we're supposed to grab there. That when we're seeing the marks of a true disciple, when we're seeing the qualities of a true disciple, they are devoted. The widow here, Mary or the woman here, they just give it all for Jesus. While the disciples want to talk about big buildings and Judas wants his 30, his 30 pieces of silver, these two women get it. He has maximum value. They're devoted to him. That's how you spot a true disciple, one mark of a true disciple. They're devoted to Jesus. But number two, that devotion turns into action. Mary and her devotion couldn't hold it in. With probably premeditation. I, I, don't, I don't think this happens on a whim. This is pre-thought out. I, I, I want to show Jesus his, wor his worth through this worship. So they don't, they're not just devoted. They take action with what they're devoted to. And then three, a, true, a mark of a true disciple is that they invite others. That aroma filled that room. It affected people. Her devotion to Jesus was made obvious to everybody else. To the point of embarrassment. And it was worth it to her. The mark of that true believer is you're, you live so devoted and take actions according to your devotion that your obvious worth in Jesus that other people notice. It's an invitation to others to come smell that aroma and be a part of it. Judas was the exact opposite. His devotion was to money. It led to his action to be a fake and a fraud, to then betray Jesus, to invite no one else, but just to get his own and get out of there. So when we spot the true disciple, the marks of the true disciple, we are devoted, we take action, and then we invite others. Final word for me, and I'm going to ask the band to come up as I pray is that something of a surprise here that it's the disciples they are the ones that just can't get it the disciples are the ones that can't see Jesus' worth and it ends up being in this culture at least the, the denigrated I mean the women were second class citizens and here's here's Jesus ministry showing sometimes it is the lowly the widow giving her offering it's the lowly it's Mary at Jesus' feet and head seeing Jesus for all he is it's that final encouragement I want to give you See Jesus for all he's worth and pour out everything you've got. There's nothing worth keeping back. Everything you give to him is worth it.